atop an isolated hill in the eastern moors of Keldroon. An imposing circle of dark stone rises upwards from among the heather. Its name is Grion Ballet. The walls of the ring fort are tall, not on the grand scale of a southern palace, perhaps, but still three or four times the height of a man. They stretch in a perfect circle, almost a hundred paces in diameter. A rough stone face broken only by the remains of a massive gate of pine wood and iron. No buildings stand within the protective embrace of the fortifications, merely the ruins of a foundation in the center of the courtyard, where a shrine may have once kept a silent vigil, or a tower may have once proudly soared above the countryside. The image is colored by the near-constant, misty drizzle that showers the eastern highlands. The ancient, empty fortress seems to weep as the rain trickles down its cold, lifeless walls. It does not stand alone. To the east, a barren stretch of windswept grass runs down to the sea, but to the west stands the barrow. A mound of earth piled atop a neighboring hill, just as ancient and somber as the ring fort. The burial mound is as featureless as the stone wall. A single tunnel, facing eastward towards the fortress, carves deep into the earth and rapidly fades into an impenetrable darkness. Who could say what lies further down, far from the fading light of the sun? The few homesteaders bold enough to stake a claim in that wilderness avoided the barrow. No good could come from seeking out the dead. Although the fortress stands abandoned, it wasn't always so. For much of the Ring Fort's history, the tribe of Ruha grazed their herds just to the south. In the year 454 by the North Tide calendar, a brave young Fian by the name of Neil del Ruha set out northwards with his warriors and followers to claim the bastion for his own. His people celebrated the venture, the youngest son of their chieftain taking to the moors to make a name for himself, and spirits were high as they loaded wagons full of timber and seed grain for the journey, taking along with them a herd of his father's finest cattle as well. When they arrived at Grianbale, they quickly set to the work of making the dead ring of stone habitable for the living. They erected a lodge upon the foundations of the tower within the courtyard, and began sowing crops and settling their livestock in the surrounding fields. The summer passed lazily by as the settlers explored the surrounding land and prepared for the harvest. Life was good. The stores of food they had brought with them carried them through the season and towards autumn, when a fresh crop of cereal grains would be ready to propel them through the winter and into the next year. Though spirits remained high, none of Neil Dalruha's warriors could bring themselves to muster the courage necessary to journey westward towards the barrow. The burial mound seemed to cast a pall over the denizens of the ring fort. The more superstitious among them huddled around the hearth late at night, telling stories of ghosts and elves emerging from below the earth. For his part, Neil laughed off the worries. He was a warrior and the son of a chieftain. 
No unfounded whispers of the supernatural would scare him away from the fortress that was his great prize. His confidence buoyed that of his followers, emboldening the more fearful of them by dint of their leader's conviction. That is, until the fall arrived. The cold spell came over the fortress unseasonably early, and with a biting ferocity that caught the settlers off guard. Overnight, the fields of oats were taken by frost. Within a week, the harvest had been destroyed entirely. The whispers of the supernatural grew into claims that the fortress was cursed. After all, what could have caused such a disruption of the natural order but a powerful spell upon the land? There were natural explanations for the weather, of course, but logic and reason are a small comfort when faced with an unexpected shortage of food. A few of the more fearful tribesmen fled before the oncoming winter. The rest braced themselves and took stock of their remaining resources. Cattle were slaughtered and the meat set up to cure. If they were careful with rationing, they would barely, just barely, make it through the winter and to spring when they could plead for the chieftain of their tribe to have fresh provisions brought up from the south. Neil rallied his followers, and they prepared as best they could. That renewed hope sustained them through the early weeks of winter. The days grew shorter, and the nights grew longer, as the winter solstice and the festival of Elftide approached. There were no celebrations and sacrifices, only a few prayers to the gods of their tribe that they would make it to spring. As the day of Elftide arrived, their hope grew thinner. Cattle fell dead in the barns they had erected as disease came over their herds, a turn of fortune none of the settlers had foreseen. The winter solstice passed over them as the last of their livestock fell to the blight. With the last vestiges of their grain quickly consumed, and the last of their herds taken by the scourge that had swept through the land, the remaining settlers had little choice. They fled their ring fort towards their homeland in the south. By spring's arrival, the fortress lay silent, still, and dead once more. As the snow turned to rain, gentle tears streaked down the face of the stone walls as they had for centuries prior. Quiet, still, and sorrowful, the ring fort returned to its natural state, lifeless. Neil del Ruha was not the only lord to venture forth in an attempt to reclaim Grianbala. Just over 40 years after his disastrous expedition, his grandnephew, Martin del Ruha, led an expedition to reclaim the fortress. At only 23 years of age, he had succeeded his late father as the Erard chieftain of the Ruha, nearly two grades below the title of king. His influence was great, as were his resources, and he was determined to not fall prey to the same misfortune as his great uncle. His mind was set upon a kingship, and that could only occur if he held dominion over the northern tribes of the territory in which his people dwelled. Martin was an ambitious chieftain, you see, 
Should he succeed in taking and holding the ring fort, it could prove to be an invaluable foothold in future conquests to the north. The military advantages of an already fortified and nigh-impenetrable stronghold were too tantalizing to pass up, and the chieftain of the Ruha was eager to extend his reach into neighboring lands in pursuit of that kingship he so desired. With that prospect in mind, he prepared a full year for the journey northwards. A single caravan of provisions would not suffice. Instead, a wagon train would bring barley, dried apples and wild cherries, salted meats, and other foodstuffs to the ring fort once every month. A trio of druids were enlisted to read omens from the movements of the birds, and burn herbs to placate any spirits that may harbor ill will towards the settlers. The chieftain's warriors were armed and armored, and chariots were built to aid them in scouting hostile lands. When the spring of the year 495 arrived, Martin Dalruha was thoroughly prepared to mobilize his followers and begin the campaign. He swiftly took the fortress and began to fortify his new holding. His warriors ranged far, raiding the sparse, poorly defended villages that dotted the landscape, bringing silver and fine goods back to the circle of stone in which their chieftain dwelled. The farmers sowed seeds and tended to their crops, while cowherds grazed their lord's cattle along the heath. Spirits were high as Martin began his campaign, and he richly rewarded his followers with the spoils of his conquest. His scouts roamed through the outlands and returned with reports of neighboring tribes. All agreed that his position in Grianbala was unassailable. His rivals fled before the warriors of Ruha, and none could muster the troops necessary to drive the invaders out of the ring fort, even if they were bold enough to try. None of his charioteers, however, approached the barrow atop the neighboring hill. Perhaps it was negligence. Perhaps it was fear. Whatever the case was, they never approached that lonely grave even when pressed by their lord to bring back news of what may have dwelled within. According to some stories, a particularly brash warrior challenged the chieftain to ride up to the barrow himself if he was so curious. Nobody still living knows whether Martin actually took to his steed and approached that lonely mound of earth and stone. Nobody knows if he rode up to the mouth of the burial chamber and looked within. Perhaps he did. Perhaps if he had, he might have realized what would befall his campaign. As had happened to his great uncle before him, the frost came early in the fall. Crops withered and died before the unnatural cold, but the supply wagons came month after month. There was no danger of starvation, as had been the case for Neil's ill-fated expedition 41 years prior, but the echoes of the past did not sit well with the new settlers. Superstitions rose to the forefront of their minds. Three druids made sacrifices to the spirits of the land as fall turned towards winter, and they burned the bones of cattle in honor of Crossing's Eve, even as they privately counseled their chieftain, turn back and abandon the venture dark portents abounded, 
and none were as keenly aware of that fact as the wise men. Still, Martin refused. The dream of conquest and kingship still burned brightly in his mind's eye. He was determined to face down the gods of this land themselves if that was what it took to achieve his goal. His spirit, for better or for worse, was indomitable. When winter arrived in force, however, that desperate struggle for survival between man and nature came to a head. Panic spread throughout the settlement as madness overtook their cattle. Bulls gored their handlers and each other while cows refused to feed and wasted away. The cattle that were overcome by the strange outbreak were separated from the herds and slaughtered, a little effect. Even at a great distance, the contagion overtook the remaining livestock. A single bull managed to break away from the slaughterer's grasp and flee into the wilderness to the west, disappearing into the mist towards the barrow. The chieftain's warriors stood guard in shifts, keeping the weaker-willed settlers from taking flight back to southern lands. The regular supply wagon with its cargo of grain was met with relief. Martin allowed many of the women and children to return south with the caravan. Perhaps he recognized that his authority would only stretch so far and hoped to avoid the risk of rebellion by doing so. Perhaps he knew somewhere in his heart of hearts that something dark was coming. The winter solstice passed, and with it the festival of Elftide. The first supply wagon of the new year rattled along the moors towards the ringfold. The drivers arrived to silence, broken only by the faint trickle of rain misting down from the sky. There was no one to greet them, only the great pinewood gates stoically shut and barred from the inside. They called out and waited for the doors to swing open, but there was no response. Unease gripped them as the minutes dragged on. It was clear that something was terribly wrong. One of the wagoneers, a strong young lad with a good arm, threw a rope up the wall and laboriously scaled the stone face. The others waited in silent apprehension. The gate swung open. Their companion stood just beyond. The rest of the fortress was empty. No valuables had been taken. Nothing was out of place. The hall that had been erected over the ruins of that ancient tower was eerily quiet as they searched for any signs of what had happened. The only trace of a struggle they found was in their chieftain's quarters. A long streak of blood along the floor, as if a wound had been dealt and a body dragged. The dark brown smear faded into nothingness as it stretched towards the door of the great hall, disappearing entirely before reaching the portal. The Ruha never found out what happened to their chieftain, what happened to his followers and warriors. Rumors abounded within the tribe that the fortress was truly cursed, and that the curse had claimed the lives of their leader and greatest fighters. 
It wasn't long before word spread to neighboring clans of the weakened state the Ruha found themselves in. Eager to exact revenge for the raids that Martin had wrought upon them, their rivals swooped in like vultures and devastated the Ruha's remaining holdings. In a bitter, ironic end to their chieftain's once glorious campaign, Martin's people found themselves subjugated by the very enemies they had hoped to conquer. All indifferent to the suffering of the Ruha, the Ringfort stood empty and lifeless once more. If you were to inquire as to the origin of Grianbala, you would likely get a different answer from every tribe you asked. Legends are like that, a kernel of truth wrapped in an assortment of entertaining falsehoods. Names vary greatly, timelines are woefully inconsistent, and it's impossible to say with certainty where the truth lies. The best we can do is look for commonalities between retellings, and sometimes simply decide on the best story. You must take the following tale with a pinch of salt. Legends are like that. A thousand years ago, or perhaps a few hundred, or perhaps many thousands, the ruler of the Tan de Eru, the king of the elves, conquered the land of Keldrum. He was a powerful and regal man of great stature and profound thought. His people had learned all the secret arts of the western and southern lands, and finally, they had come to the island to claim a home for themselves, after their many, many years of wandering. Keldrun was not uninhabited. Every storyteller agrees upon that. Such a fertile land inevitably must attract waves of new settlers coming to supplant the old, and the old denizens must inevitably fight to protect their claim upon the isle. Such was the case when the Tan de Eru arrived and found the island inhabited by the Thitav, the people of the undersea. Details get blurry around this point. Were the Thitav a race of monstrous creatures, foul and disfigured? Were they terrifyingly and hauntingly beautiful? It depends on the story and on the teller. Perhaps they were monstrous, or perhaps they were simply doomed to that sort of slander when they were recast as the villains, if, in fact, they ever existed. Perhaps they were not a single people, but rather an amalgamation of many discrete groups of the Isle's denizens. It's a fool's errand to attempt to marshal fables into the strict chronology of history. Regardless of the telling, all accounts agree that the King of the Elves led his people into a final confrontation with the Thitav in the Eastern Highlands. Their forces clashed atop a hill in a great combat. Shields and spears were shattered upon the battlefield. The sky was rent apart by thunder and lightning as the magicians of the Tandaeru called upon their great and terrible arts, and war drums echoed through the moors. The Elf King met the chieftain of the Thitav in single combat, trading blow for blow. In the end, the Elf King lost his arm. The chieftain of the Thitav lost his life. The victory was not without a cost. Though the Tan de Eru had won the day, many of their own had perished upon the battlefield. As the ravens gathered overhead to feast on the dead, 
the Elf King found his only son amongst the corpses scattered along the hillside. He was buried where he had fallen, and the king had a great fortress built around the tomb to protect and honor his son's sacrifice. Every year, for the rest of his days, the elf king would make a pilgrimage to his heir's grave on the darkest day of the winter. As the sun waned, he would travel humbly on foot to the place his son was buried in remembrance of the loss he had suffered. And, for the rest of his days, the one-armed king Sorrow followed wherever he went, casting a pall over the land. No laughter or music sounded as he made his journey. They say that winter itself, the season of death, arrives with the Elf King. A poetic sentiment, to be sure, but a wholly artistic invention. They say that even after the elves were driven across the sea and under the ground, as the legend goes, the Elf King couldn't bear to be far from his dear child. If you ask around the moors, you'll hear from any number of old storytellers and bards that the King had a barrow built on a hill just opposite his son's grave, and that he remains there, below the earth, to this very day. <laughs> 